Welcome to Unlocking Leadership. I'm Claire Carpenter and I'm your host. I'm joined today by Caroline Carruthers. Caroline is the Chief Executive of Carruthers and Jackson. She's a renowned, globally recognized data leader. Caroline's written two best selling books, The Chief Data Officer's Playbook and Data Driven Business Transformation. Caroline, I'm not going to say more about you. I could do that for quite a long time. How would you like us to uh, welcome you to the podcast today? How are you landing? Oh, hi, Claire. And you know what? That was such a wonderful introduction. Um, I think my mum couldn't have written it any better. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a always lovely to hear about things that you've done through somebody else's language so no it's um it's a pleasure to be here thank you well so let's find out a bit more about who you are and and your I'm going to use the journey word this early in the podcast but um what's your journey been to the place that you find yourself now Um, I think that if you talk about my career as any kind of journey it would probably be a slightly eclectic one is probably the best way of putting it Um, I definitely haven't followed any kind of narrow path. I didn't have a burning ambition to be a chief data officer or a chief executive when I was at school. In fact, I'm pretty sure when I was at school and the dinosaurs roamed the earth that they'd never heard of chief data officers, so I couldn't follow the path there. Um, But what I have done through my whole career is um, focus on two things really so one I have this innate sense of curiosity so I always like finding out things and I do have a sense of what's the worst that could happen and I it's a question that I ask myself an awful lot when I'm making decisions it's I try to focus on not what the negatives are I think it's oh you know what's the worst that can happen in a very light-hearted way but what could happen what's the upside we spend so much time I think when we think about careers thinking that they're static or linear. Whereas to me, the exciting stuff is jumping and not quite knowing where you're going to land. I love that. Jumping and not quite knowing where you're going to land. And how did you jump into it in the first place? What drew you towards data um, from a career point of view? So from a career point of view, um, I actually started off in IT a long time ago. So I came through a very technical route And it was a source of frustration for me, really, that I always felt like I was putting sticky plasters on the problem and we weren't really getting to the heart of the matter. And it was a sort of guiding light for me, sort of euphoria moment when I realised that the problem was that we weren't actually getting to the root of the problem because ordinarily the root of the problem came down to data and not the technology that we were putting in. So we weren't really solving the whole problem. We were only solving part of it. So that's why I started to focus down the data route, because then I felt like I was really, truly being a problem solver. I'm just thinking about the way that must have changed in the time that you've been working on it. And what what were the sort of key touch points for you as you saw the way that data's both collected and used in organisations move as you've gone through that career? I think the, um, the first thing, and I think it's really interesting, is when I started working in data, it felt a bit Wild Westish, if I'm honest. Um, and I think one of the, the good positive things around that time period is that the friends and colleagues that I made at the time who were all starting out in data around the same time, we formed this wonderful community because we all felt like we didn't quite have it right. Um, so we've banded together and they're still really good friends that I talk to. We still bounce ideas off. We have no problem ringing each other going, 
I've hit this problem and I've never seen this one before. Do you know what I'm doing? And I, I love that kind of sense of community that can only really come about when you can be honest and open with each other. And I think that for me, I know um, earlier on, Claire, we were talking a little bit about leadership before we started recording. But I think for me, that kind of sense of when I first started out in my career, I thought that I might not know what I'm doing, but the person above me, they must know. I had this this sort of innate sense of, well, they must know what we're really doing. So I just have to keep following them. And then you make it up to that level and you still don't know everything you're supposed to be doing. But the person above you must, right? So I just need to keep going up the levels and eventually this magical moment will happen and I'll just know. And I think once you get to the stage in your career where you can be honest with yourself and others around you that you don't have all the answers, but you're prepared to be honest and ask the questions, that's when you can really start and claim to be a leader. I think there's been lots of our um, listeners um, that's really resonating with this afternoon. In your bio, Caroline, it describes you as a data leader. And I know that you have been highly awarded for your work in the data field, um, including data leader of the year last year. What is that? What does it mean to lead with data? I think um, sometimes when I call a data cheerleader, I often change it a little bit and say that I'm a data cheerleader. And what I mean by that is I genuinely think data is this really underused asset. To me, it's the equivalent of an organisation hiring 50 people and going, we have no idea what to do with you, but could you just go across and sit in that field and we'll eventually get around to thinking about what we can use you for? You would never do that. That sounds ludicrous when I say it. So why are we sitting on these massive, big mountains of incredible data that we can do something with and use as an asset but we're not even trying to look at it so that's why I would say myself as a data leader or data cheerleader because I just think we've got this this asset there that we should be using we should be helping us to do something with but I think what comes with the whole idea of data is there's still a fear factor for a lot of people around data. And I don't think sometimes in the data space, we help ourselves. We use a lot of words and terms that quite frankly, we should be shot for using. There's no need to, we don't need to make it any more complicated than it is. Data itself is a very, very simple concept. It's a building block of how we can actually solve problems. And everybody is solving problems every day. So how do we make sure that we put the right data in the right hands to make the right decisions quickly? I was thinking about um, the challenges, Caroline, of how a less experienced leader might overcome that fear of data and, and learn to use data in a way to support the intuitive way they make decisions um, instead of sort of shying away from it. I wonder if you've had some examples where you've seen that in action. Oh, absolutely. I think I love the word that you use there around the intuitive nature of making decisions. Because despite the fact that I talk about being a big data cheerleader and wanting us all to get more from this asset, I do not want to take humans out of the equation. For me, the perfect blend when it comes to data is actually using data to make our life simple so that we can do the more interesting things. And I think a wonderful example of that that I'd probably to um, bring to the fore at the moment is the COVID vaccines, for instance. So 
when it came to data, some very, very clever people, much cleverer than I am, used the data to figure out the avenues that we wouldn't be able to come up with vaccines from. So they didn't. the data didn't help us come up with the vaccines. What they did was stop our very clever scientists going off down rabbit holes that wouldn't have helped it. So their main attention and focus went down the kind of lucrative rabbit holes to actually come up with the vaccines as fast as possible. And I think that's a wonderful example of actually using data to get to the solution quickly, but you still have a really strong human element because the machine cannot replicate the kind of breadth and creativity that human can. There's that combination, isn't there, as you you say, of human and data that they need to be somehow magically linked almost to get the right decisions, as you said, in the quickest time and point people in the right direction? In a lot of cases, and, and, and to go back to the question you asked around, you know, how can you get over that fear of data and use it to help you do what you want to do better? Um, ordinarily, it's just about understanding what you really need to help you make decisions. One of the um, things that I've seen less experienced managers and leaders do is try to get more and more information. So I need a bigger dashboard. I need more uh, KPIs. Give me more, give me more. And all you're then doing is um, overloading your system with too much data because it literally too much is as bad as too little. And you become overwhelmed and you can't see the wood for the trees, the data trees, I guess. So by understanding what are the critical things that you need to know to help you make a decision and what kind of tolerance you can make that decision within, then being clear about that will make it much easier for you to be able to take the next step and move forward. It's, it's, it kind of feeds the kind of organisational paralysis. I talk about a concept called data hoarding. Um, you know, if you see those TV programmes where people have hoarded stuff in their homes, so they've you know, they can't use their cooker anymore because it's full of 1920s railway magazines and they have no path through their house to get to their bed. Organisations and companies are doing the equivalent of that with their data. They are clogging the arteries of their organisations with so much data that they're never going to use. And most of it's probably meaningless that they inhibit people from seeing clearly what they need to know to be able to make the right decision. The other thing around data that I think we all need to be aware of is what kind of risk tolerance we have and our organisations carry. So for some data, it doesn't need to be 100% accurate. I I hear the phrase from a lot of people about, oh, I don't like the data quality. It doesn't, it's not the right quality for what I want to use. Well, okay, what kind of quality is good enough for you? And the example that I would use is it depends on the decision that you're making as to what kind of quality and effort um, you would put into your data. So for instance, many, many moons ago, I was the chief data officer for Network Rail. And when I was the chief data officer for Network Rail, you would hope, and I did, that I would spend a lot more time making sure that the data used to make the decision on whether a train could go down another track was accurate to 100%. Because if I had that piece of data wrong, people could die. However, For the person that had to choose how many tea bags had to be ordered for the train, you don't need to be 100% accurate. There is a risk tolerance that it's okay. Depending on the implications of the decision you're making um, has a factor on 
how accurate the data is that you, you have to make decisions on. But being able to be comfortable with that ambiguity, I think, takes a little bit of time for a lot of people to get used to. I'm just thinking about, um, as you talk about the different kinds of data and the way that uh, accuracy is dependent upon the uh, the value, if you like, of the decision that it supports. Have you seen areas of organisations who are more reticent to get really into the data than others? I'm wondering, we might think about finance as being very data-driven, but we might think about uh, HR or human resources as being more people-led. What's your experience of the way that different parts of organisations use data? I think it's really interesting because that you mentioned both finance and HR there. So we talk about finance being data-driven and, and I have to say that finance use an awful lot of data. But what we tend to find a lot of organisations is finance is very, very risk-adverse. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but it is one area that I found sometimes the strength can become a weakness because they're so risk adverse. They're frightened about getting any value from that data. And I think this is a bit of a byproduct of things like GDPR and legislation around data as well. Personal data is a very important thing. And data ethics is something that I'm incredibly passionate about. However, that hasn't helped the whole fear of data as well, because people are so worried that they'll get it wrong, that they do nothing. When in a lot of cases, it's just about understanding the outcome you're trying to drive towards and then working with any data teams that you have or um, any regulatory teams that you have within your organisations to go, if this is the outcome, how can you safely help me get there? I wonder if you've got um, an an example of where you've seen an organisation or a business be really transformed by the way that they um, perhaps use data um, or consider data in in the way that they approach their markets. I think there's some really interesting examples have happened, especially over the past couple of years. And I know that the whole COVID situation for the past couple of years has been horrific for an awful lot of people. For the kind of person that I am, I need to try and find some good in it. And I think if you look at how organisations have transformed around their digital agenda and their data agenda and how they use it, that has come on so much in the past three years. And one of the examples that I would give ties a little bit into understanding the risk factor. So one one lesson that I feel like a lot of organisations have learned in the past few years is that sometimes good enough really is good enough. That's not a bad phrase, that when you're starting off a new project or program in any kind of organisation, trying to get the requirements locked down, trying to get people to agree, you can go around in so many circles, there that paralysis kicks in again, so nothing actually starts. Whereas if you're focused on, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be good enough, you can move so much quicker. Now, obviously, if you're doing something that people's lives depend on it, you want safety, not quickness. But for the vast majority, let's be honest, the vast majority of what we do in organisations, we could move a lot faster if we focused on that kind of attitude. If moving the conversation towards what makes people look for a career within the data field, what what what's your view on how we attract people into this space? I think the first thing is probably breaking down the data field as well because um, 
I do think there tends to be this image about what a data person looks like, and it's not that dissimilar to what an IT person looks like either. Um, so, you know, we tend to get this geeky, nerdy label, but there are so many interesting roles within data. You know, there's everything within data from the whole governance space, um, reporting, analytics, data science, data engineering, you know, being a translator role out to the business to help them get more from the data. So I really think we can do a lot more to publicise the variety of um, what you could get involved with within the data space. And I think for a lot of people that I'm keen to move into data is to actually focus on some of the big problems that we're starting to solve because we're tackling data properly. And that, to me, for the right kind of minded person, that should be one of the key attractions. This is There are some big world problems here you could be involved with solving. And I wonder if, um, as you say, there's this sort of smoke and mirrors fear factor that still surrounds some of the work in data that people who work outside of it don't really understand. And I, I honestly, and I can understand why. Um, I am absolutely sure, 100% sure, that there are people within the data space who've made their living from coming up with terms that nobody else understands. And it's just not necessary. If you think about it, if you are searching on Google, if you're writing a shopping list, um, if you're on social media, you are using data in some way, shape or form. So if we're all using it, then we should all have the skills and be um, what I would call data literate enough to know what we're doing. Using the social media one as an example. Because I'm very passionate that there should be at least a base level of data literacy across the general population. I'm not telling people, for instance, not to use social media. I never would. What I would want you to know is that you are actually paying for it through your information, your data. And it's if that value exchange you're comfortable with, brilliant. Carry on. Have fun but at least be aware that that's what's happening. I'm thinking back to the way that search engines work on some of the um, social media platforms and things like that and and really understanding um, the sort of algorithms that sit behind it. It's interesting, isn't it? It's amazing how much organisations hold data around us that we aren't aware of it and how comfortable we are giving some people our data and other organisations not. And I don't know about you, but I found it incredibly fascinating um, again, during the COVID situation, when you could look on um, social media and see the amount of information that people would share with a social media platform. And yet at the same time, um, people were really uncomfortable giving the NHS information about them. They probably put more on Facebook than they put on the NHS app. So you're happy to trust a social media engine, but not your national health service. And being able to dissect those kind of things is why I think data is a really key field for people to get into. And where does where's it going, Caroline? What's next in, in that world? That's a one that I find incredibly hard to answer just because the possibilities are literally endless. Um, for me, when it comes to the data and the digital space, it feels a bit like all the wardrobes, wardrobe doors are open and Narnia's there, but only some of us are realize it exists and we've got this whole generation following us that they're comfortable with that i have an 18 year old who the digital world is as real to him as the physical world is to me he thinks nothing of i'm going to see my friends 
and he does it online. So this next generation is comfortable wandering in and out of Narnia, and it's actually the older generation that needs to spend a bit more time getting used to it. So what I find fascinating in the data in the digital space is what can happen when those natives start coming through into the workforce. Thinking about um, your experience as a leader now and linking that into um, your experience of training and development and and your investment um, in yourself through your career, as well as in the world of data and the technical expertise that you bring to that, how have you wrapped around development in the leadership space um, in your career? See, I, I'm a big fan of constant learning. So, and I don't think, um, I don't think it always has to be um, traditional learning. But I think you have to be constantly learning something. So I've used a variety of. Um, courses and skills and reading but I think one constant for me is um, being able to ask questions of other people I, I I learn better from other people so I think it's important that you understand what kind of um, style learning style that you have and play into it a little bit I'm, I'm a big big fan of playing to your strengths I'm not such a big fan of you know, covering the weaknesses off or focusing on your weaknesses. I think if you play to your strengths and make sure that you're working in a team where you have a nice diversity of thought across the team, those kind of things can go away anyway. So, Caroline, you use a coach, don't you, to help offer additional challenge and insights into um, the way that you approach your role. What's your experience of that? For me, it's been... um, brilliant and absolutely fantastic experience I have to say that it's an incredibly challenging one and um, a one that if you're doing it right you should find um, hard but rewarding at the same time because a really good coach doesn't let you off the hook Um, I find that the best part about working with a really um, experienced coach is that they make you face parts of yourself that maybe you didn't really want to but you need to for your own growth I mean, let's be honest, there's always parts of us that we think, oh, no, no, I'm a wonderful person. I keep telling my dad that my middle name is Mary Poppins because I was such a perfect child. And uh, he doesn't believe me. I don't know why. But, um, you know, we always have a view of ourselves that is the way we like to be seen and be portrayed. And a really good coach will make you think about the parts if you're really being the best you. And, and I have to say, I think this is a really critical um, question to ask yourself about why, what are your values? Why do you want to do things? What kind of difference do you want to make? Do you want to make a difference and make you tackle the big questions that realistically, I think we could all learn and grow from. Just thinking about your um, ongoing development and thinking about um, the way that you approach things through that positive lens of working on strengths. Um You started off by saying that one of the uh, ways that you approach your role um, as both a leader and a data um, expert is through curiosity. Watch the worst that could happen and also watch the upside. What sort of advice would you give to people in perhaps an early leadership role today around how they incorporate data into their decision making process and, and, and take that sort of curtain of fear away? I think that the best advice, the best leadership advice I would give someone um, is slightly different from how, what kind of advice around data. So I'll give you both. So the best advice that I'll give anybody 
is to not limit yourself based on other people's preconceptions. If you're passionate about something, if you're interested in it, if it's something that excites you, then give it a go. Try it. You know, there's plenty of time to worry later. Trust me, there will be plenty of time to worry later. But you will never know unless you give something a go. So do not um, block yourself because of what other people think. And then I think when it comes to data, the advice that I would get is actually it's a lot simpler than everybody leads you to believe sometimes. I mean, the data community is, I think, a wonderfully inclusive community. We will help anybody. LinkedIn's a fantastic um, resource. If you've got questions, ask people. Don't be frightened about it. There are literally no stupid questions. And I think that you will find that if you start talking to people around data who really understand data, they can make it all very simple for you because you probably know much more than you think you do. Yeah, it's that investment in ourself, isn't it? That increase of self-awareness and then, you know, the the opening up of choices about how we show up in the world and what we do differently. Exactly. It's about whether you want to actually steer your own career or you just want to be a passenger. and. For me, I've never wanted to be a passenger. There's something about, are you ready to go out and find your opportunities or are you waiting for them to just arrive at you? And, you know, I can see from um, your biography that you've definitely been out there looking for them. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure to share some of that experience with you today. Thank you so much for your insights um, and your openness um, of the experience that you've had and that you bring to your field. Um, I look forward to seeing where it takes you next. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lovely conversation. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Unlocking Leadership, you can subscribe through all the regular podcast channels. And please do leave us a rating and review there. We'd also love you to share any episodes you've found interesting on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or wherever, so that others can join the conversation and share their experiences. This podcast was made in association with Corndell. It was produced and edited by Nick Hilton for Podo.